in the 73rd Psalm and verse 20, the psalmist says, As a dream, when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. And that's our title this evening, The Dream of Life. But I go back to the beginning of the psalm and the first verse, Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. This is about a psalmist's momentary fall into doubt and confusion. And he's open about it. And he tells us about it and the cause of it and how he recovered from it. And it's so helpful to us because it's really all about knowing, finding the Lord. It's a psalm of Asaph. Well, there were 12 psalms of Asaph, and you can't be absolutely sure whether it's a psalm of David or a psalm of Asaph, because uh, the old view was once that uh, pretty well all the psalms, including Asaph's, were by David. But, uh, and it was thought that where you find a psalm of Asaph, well, he was David's chief musician, the leader of the principal choirs. And it used to be thought, well, perhaps it's a psalm of David, but the musical setting is by Asaph, and that's what is attributed to him. So it could be, like others, a psalm of David, or it could be by the musician Asaph, who was also a prophet and a seer. But whichever psalmist, this is their experience, and it's helpful to us. But it opens with an affirmation. And what I'm going to do, an unusual thing, I'm going to go through the whole psalm, if possible, very quickly. But that first verse is an affirmation, because some doubting things are going to be said, the psalmist, first of all, makes his current position absolutely clear. Truly, surely, certainly, I prove this, I found this. I'm not wavering from this anymore. So he starts with a positive note. God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart, which indicates not the whole of Israel. Israel was a nation as well as a church, and not all were sincere, but the sincere would be those who repented of sin, sought the pardon of God, and it's those that the psalmist has in mind. Truly God is good, even to such as are of a clean heart. But now we come to the first section, the psalmist's momentary fall and it's from verse 2 but as for me my feet were almost gone not quite he hadn't given up his faith altogether but he almost had my steps had well nigh slipped and he tells us why perhaps his trust was eroded by the things he observed which we'll talk about and perhaps uh, he had uh, left off regular worship. Perhaps he had 
left off the study of God's word, the scriptures, and he'd tailed off in his prayer life. As I know, he was shaken with this doubt. My feet were almost gone. He almost collapsed entirely. And here's the reason, verse 3. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. These are people who deny the being of a personal God. These are people who go all out for finding their pleasure and their happiness and their fulfillment in this present world and deride God and ignore him. But things are not right because there seems to be no justice from God. This is the thought that occurs to him. And he's got his eye on some of these people and he notices their success, their prosperity, their wealth and many other features of their lives. Of course, he's not describing everyone. It sounds as though he is, but he can't possibly be because there were numerous in those days in that place There were numerous people who were extremely poor and many, many sick and many with all kinds of troubles and problems. So he's not speaking about everyone. His notice is attracted particularly by the healthy, prosperous, rich, or some of them that he had in mind. Where's the justice of God that they prosper so greatly? I was envious of them. And verse 4, there were no bands in their death. And that uh, is a rather interesting metaphor in the Hebrew, and it no doubt refers to bonds or bands, bonds with which if someone was uh, under attack and taken prisoner, and then they would be put in bonds and dragged off into captivity. And the idea is it's a kind of illustration There were no bands in their death. You don't see these people stricken down with illness and dragged to the grave over the last 20, 30 years of their life reluctantly and in unhappiness and pain. I'm looking, says the psalmist, at people who are so prosperous and yet they're wicked and unbelieving and they seem to go right on to a ripe old age and then go suddenly. It doesn't seem as though justice is operating in their case and in their lives. There are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm right to the end. And verse 5, they're not in trouble as other men with constant afflictions and difficulties, or at least the people he has in mind, neither are they plagued like other men. And in verse 6, look at the result. Therefore, pride compasseth them about as a chain. They are openly proud. There's no hesitation with them in exhibiting their pride in themselves and their accomplishments. And they wear it like somebody might wear a mayoral chain, a chain of office, something to be proud of, their boasting. And their claims. Violence covereth them as a garment. There's a lot of oppression with these rich people that he has in mind, and a lot of taking advantage of their poor tenants and so on. They're grasping people, 
and they, they don't mind, who knows it? Verse 7, their greed is mentioned. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. And verse 8, they're corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily and they commit all kinds of offenses against God. They slander him constantly and scorn him and speak against him. And they make this known. They seem to think it's their mission in life to shake the fist at God and to tell people far and wide of their contempt for the notion of a personal God and service of him. They set, verse 9, they set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth. That's very powerful language. They send this message far afield. Well, we have it in our day. We have the militant atheists so pleased with their unbelief and their views and their slanders. They write their books and they send this message afar. Now, there's another section here, just in a single verse. Verse 10, Therefore his people, some God-fearing people, some worshipping people, return hither, which means they fall backwards, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. They temporarily, like the psalmist, lose their faith. They are so uh, attracted to the lifestyle of some of these people and their wealth and their ease and their surrendering all responsibility before God that they fall into that idea and their belief is shaken. And so they have many sorrows as a result, and disappointments and upsets. So they're the cause of some backsliding, even among otherwise worshipping people. And verse 11, there's such contempt in them for God. They say, and this is the ungodly, how doth God know? It's the denial of a personal God. And is their knowledge in the Most High? So if you notionally accept the idea of a God, you will say, he's just a force. He's not an intelligent being. He's not tracking human beings. He's not interested. Verse 12, behold, these are the ungodly. It, that term means unworshipping who prosper in the world, they increase in riches. And this is the, what the psalmist came to, verse 13. Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain. I've repented of my sin and sought the forgiveness of God for nothing. Because this is not just. And washed my hands in innocent, innocency I've sought to obey God and live for him, and that's naive because he isn't there to notice or he doesn't care. Perhaps these people are right. So the psalmist, David or Asaph, at some point in their lives were shaken by this. For all the day long, verse 14, 
have I been plagued and chastened every morning. Now, as believers in God, David, Asaph, would have been striving to obey his commands. Of course, the soul isn't saved because of our striving to obey God's commands. The soul is saved by grace alone, by seeking the forgiveness of God and receiving it as a free gift. But once we've found him and we know him and we walk with him, then we want to live for him. It doesn't earn our salvation. We can't do that. But obviously, once we're his children, it's what we want to do. And you will repent of your daily sins. And you will say constantly to yourself, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. Whatever possessed me. And you will repent and promise God to strive. And that's what the psalmist means. I have been plagued and chastened every morning in the struggle against sin. Verse 15, his secret. If I say, I will speak about this, I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. I would shake the faith of others. I would betray my whole tradition. I can't do that. So I try to figure it out. Why is God so lenient with those who are so set against him, his enemies in the world? Why does he leave them in their prosperity? Why does he leave them saying what they want and allow them to live out their lives in health and strength? Why is it? Verse 16, when I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. That's an interesting expression. What's the translation too painful translates the Hebrew which says, it was like hard labor to me. Perhaps the translators have gone just a shade too far in saying painful. It's the labor which should come through clearly. When I tried to figure this out, says the psalmist, I thought and I thought and I thought and I couldn't arrive at the solution because God is just and God is fair. So why does he leave them be and let them get away with all their damage? When I thought to know this, it was hard labor for me, is the Hebrew. Painful labor, if you like. And then, verse 17, the psalmist's discovery. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Now, there's a lot in this which is metaphorical, really. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Let me tell you what he probably means. The sanctuary of God was where the scriptures were read and taught and expounded. 
The priests read them and they explained them. It was the place of scripture. It was also the place of sacrifice. The great illustration of the sacrifice that would come when Christ, the son of the living God, came and gave himself and suffered the agonies of the cross to bear the punishment due to us for our sin. But the house of God was also the place of scripture and of teaching. And when the psalmist says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, he may very well mean it literally. I'm sure he does. He went into the sanctuary. But what he's telling us much more is until I read the word of God. The sanctuary is the place of the word of God. I couldn't understand this. Why does God not exercise his judgment in this life? Until I took up the scriptures, God's revelation, and then I understood. Judgment chiefly waits for the last day is the teaching of the word of God. The great day of account, the great day of reckoning. It isn't meted out anything like entirely in this present life. Though there are tokens of it meted out during this life, but 99% of judgment comes on the last day. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. And understand by end, he doesn't merely mean their death. He means their facing of God, their facing of the account. He's speaking grandly, not about a small thing, but a great thing. Not simply about the termination of their life, but what it leads to until I understood their end. They must stand before God and then it all changes. It's so different. Verse 18, he exclaims, Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Think of that, friends. Slippery places. In your mind, you may think of somebody walking along a ridge in a mountain range. Either side, there's a tremendous fall, hundreds of feet to death and destruction. And you're walking along the ridge path, right on the top, encrusted with inches of ice. How precarious is your position? You're jauntily tripping along this ridge without a care in the world, cursing God, loving yourself, loving the world, loving the here and now, living for the present, disdaining the creator. What a dangerous position to be in. One false move, you're down and you're finished. God blows upon you, you're over the edge. That's the strength of the illustration. Surely 
Thou didst set them in slippery places. I'm forgetting about the lack of judgment now when I see them on that ridge path just toying with death and eternity. Any moment ready to fall. Or you can have the illustration a different way if you like. Running across the ice on a frozen lake thinking you're on firm ground, stamping with your feet, and suddenly you're through and you cannot survive. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou casteth them down into destruction. And then, look, verse 19, how are they brought into desolation? How? This is an exclamation of wonder. It's a thing of wonder that people one minute so powerful, so well, so rich, so influential, so secure, can fall into the hands of Almighty God. How are they brought into destruction? You think of an empire building builder. You think of an Alexander the Great. You think of other historical figures built mighty empires. They could say the word and it was done. They could command anything they wanted. They had absolute power. Everything for them. And yet when the moment came for God to throw down that empire down it went. How great was the fall of it. How is it fallen? Babylon, the mighty Babylon, crushed easily by the Medo-Persian Empire when the time came. Without bloodshed, without a fight, the mighty city fallen. That's the idea here. How are they brought into desolation. Uh, The psalmist, once he grasps it, he stands back in wonder, viewing this spectacle of the secure falling into the hands of God. As in a moment, they are utterly consumed with terrors. Must be a terrible, terrible thing to all your life have resisted the kindness and the mercy of God and his forbearance and his tolerance. Let's say you've been an unbeliever and proud of it. Let's say you've held God in contempt. Let's say you've brushed off every messenger he ever sent to you. The occasional illness, the friend who told you you needed the Lord. Let's say you've spurned him at every possible opportunity all your life. And now, in the last moment, having rejected his love, his kindness, his forgiveness, his grace, suddenly, as you die, the terrible apprehension that everything was true and that you're going to stand before your maker You're going to face the judge of all the earth. 
the one who strove to be your saviour, must now be your judge. It's too late. For you, the day of grace is past. And suddenly you see it all, and your plight, and your predicament, and the horror of your contempt for him, and your foolishness. That's what the psalmist is saying here. How are they brought into desolation? As in a moment, they are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream, verse 20, when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Well, you know this. You've all had, I'm sure, some people never dream, but most people have dreams, sometimes at least. And the dream has been very vivid and very real to you. And then you woke up, and in a moment you realized it was a fiction. The thing you were running from and terrified of in the dream was nothing. It was a figment of your imagination while sleeping. It was a fabrication of your mind. It never existed. It's all finished. It's all over. As a dream, when one awaketh, perhaps you had a dream. Someone was telling me once he dreamed of being very, very rich. Perhaps there was envy in him. But he dreamed of possessing so much and he woke up with sudden sadness. He didn't have any of it. It was a fiction. As a dream, when one awaketh, that's what life is like when we're away from God. It's a dream. It's a little thing. And nothing counts eternally. And in the light of the day of judgment, if you're away from God, nothing matters. What about these people, say, let me find a strange illustration, and they're bodybuilders. Narcissism has got hold of them, and they must get bigger and bigger and bigger until they're utterly abnormal. Tremendous, strenuous efforts to excel, to be twice their size, to exhibit themselves. Everybody around them must suffer loss. Such people are such narcissists. Everything is focused on me and my needs, my dietary needs, my gym needs, my... Th and so they succeed and get into the ranks of these bodybuilding, physical culture performers. Then they die. Just think of it. And the body is laid in the grave. And within no time at all, as the months and the years passed, all that effort is gone. Putrefaction. It's gone. After two or three or four years, open the coffin. It's a skeleton. It's finished. Life was a dream. 
There was nothing for eternity. All that self-regard and narcissism, there was nothing that would last. You could apply this illustration in many other ways. There's a man I read about some years ago. He made tremendous contributions to science, which led to benefit for many people. But as I read of his life and his biography, he got through three wives and three poor women were all left as broken wrecks by him. And his children all ended up maladjusted. It was impossible to live with. Everything in the scientific realm was positive about him. Everything in the personal realm was negative about him. What does he take into eternity? We think about these things. Life may, your life may be a dream. It's going nowhere. You have no purpose. You have no destiny. You have no standing with God. You've never sought it. He would have given it to you freely. That's a tragedy, friends. That's the 20th verse. As a dream, when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, the Hebrew verb is very elastic. When it comes to the Lord, you'd be better off saying, so, O Lord, when you take account, when you observe us, you will despise our image. That's all we are, an image, a reflection in a mirror, which vanishes suddenly as soon as you walk away. The image is gone. It had no substance. What a tragedy if that's my life, measured eternally and measured spiritually. When the psalmist grasped this, verse 21, thus my heart was grieved and I was pricked in my reins. That means in my feelings, my kidneys literally, the seat of feeling in the terminology of the ancients. I was pricked in my feelings. So foolish was I to think that God would mete out justice as ill-tempered man meets out justice. No, it's on the day of judgment. So foolish was I and ignorant, I was as a beast like the lowest of the working animals in my understanding. Nevertheless, verse 23, the psalmist was restored because he had sought God's forgiveness and new life from him. He's able to say, verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee to rely on? Oh, friends, we depend upon our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, equal with the Father, equally God, who came into this world and assumed human flesh, 
so that he could be our representative and feel as we ought to feel and take our punishment upon himself and purchase our forgiveness, all who seek him. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. First place to the Lord. My flesh and my heart faileth. I cannot earn heaven in my own strength. It's a free gift from God. I repent of my sin and he gives me life. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And then the summary verse with which we close. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go whoring from thee. The adultery illustration. It's like adultery. To give up God and to love the world and to love material things and to love yourself. It's an act of spiritual adultery. No praise for him. No gratitude to him. No study of him the glorious God, no service for him, no love for him. It's adultery of the greatest sort. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee, but it is good for me to draw near to God, says the psalmist. You must approach him yourself. Nobody can do it for you. It is good for me. It's an individual approach to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord, God, that I may declare all thy works. You repent of your sin. You trust in what Christ did on Calvary's cross. You give him your life and you ask him for the new birth. And he visits you and forgives you and saves you. Let's pray. O oh Lord, look upon us all and help us. Grant us light and understanding. O oh Lord, bring us to the point where we see our need and trust in Christ alone and what he has done on Calvary. Grant new life. Grant a true experience of thyself. Grant that we may have communion with thee. Lord, look upon us and save us now. We ask these things in the name of our Saviour, for his sake. Amen.